Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Hello and welcome to another Agora Podcast Exchange. I'm Royful Brown and this month I'm sat opposite Alison Gerlach of The Unapologetic Capitalist. Alison is a seasoned strategic management consultant, serial entrepreneur, investor, business executive and lecturer with expertise in and with a passion for building businesses. In other words, she's smart and knows just about everything you need to know about the world of business. And her podcast is rather good too. Hello Alison. Hello, how are you? I'm not too bad. Where are you today? Today, I'm actually on the campus uh, at the University at St. Andrews. One of the things which kind of fascinates me about you, do, doing my extensive research, is that um, as well as the world of business, you're kind of big into academia too. So uh, what are you doing over there in my fair country? Uh, and um, what was this academia stuff that you do? Um, well, usually in academics, I, I lecture. Uh, I've been known to actually teach a course, um, a semester-long course, usually to MBA students, Masters of Business Administration students in uh, business plan writing, uh, pitching your venture, getting investments for new ventures, and I also teach international business strategy. Um, so uh, occasionally I lecture in different universities, and uh, I said I'm the Every now and then, I will teach a full semester course. Silly question, and you've really answered it. I'm going to ask it anyway. Are entrepreneurs, are they born or can you teach it? You know, a lot of people have different philosophies about entrepreneurs. I, I have a very simple one. I think that, you know, I don't think everybody's an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. but I think that an entrepreneur can come from anyone. Um, I think that there are entrepreneurs sitting in cubicles in Fortune 100 companies. I think there are entrepreneurs who, uh, you know, are students. I think there are entrepreneurs who uh, have built uh, several successful businesses. And there are definitely entrepreneurs 
who have built businesses that have failed and have come out smarter for it. Um, but there's a, a big debate about what entrepreneurship really is. Kind of interesting because I I ran my own business for some 11, 12 years and I think I'm an entrepreneur but not a businessman. I'm I'm, I'm kind of quite clear that for me there, there is a little bit of a difference. Um, but for you, what are the essential kind of ingredients that make up an entrepreneur? Um, I believe an entrepreneur is really someone who I, I think that when I generally lecture, I describe it as a really good business person uh, sees a storm coming and they're very prepared uh, for that storm mm -hmm. uh, so they can weather it. An entrepreneur is prepared for weather that nobody sees coming. Okay, so let's let's go all the way back, right? Because I'm guessing that with your background, you probably started off um, in the world of business, selling your lunch for the kids in the kindergarten. Is that kind of where you were bitten by the business bug, or at least how young were you when you kind of went on that path? I actually wasn't that entrepreneurial. I think as a kid, I was more capitalistic. I grew up in the 80s with uh, movies all about climbing the corporate ladder, mm -hmm. uh, television shows all about uh, managing the boardroom. And I was really drawn in uh, by the great uh, commanding of the really large corporations at the time. And what really sort of flipped my switch from just wanting to sort of be a high-powered executive in a big firm to actually wanting to build a venture of potentially substantial value um, really happened to me somewhere in my world. When I started working, I started, I was an investment banker, and then I worked in strategic management consulting. And I worked in got the real privilege of seeing uh, these Fortune 100 companies, these world-dominating companies in their fields. Um, and I got to see their challenges. I got to see how they were needing to grow and um, see it from the highest levels. And I, I was really privileged in that way. And when I went off to business school, I really thought, well, I, I want to sort of understand how to build that so that you can mitigate those challenges. And while I was in business school, that's when the venture bug really hit me. It was the mid-90s, really before the big tech boom. Um, but I really saw that there were these concepts and ideas out there that rather than, you know, I, I wasn't as driven by trying to build somebody else's vision. I started having lots of visions of value of my own. And um, it was actually a peer of mine uh, who I was helping with his startup who sat me down and said, uh, you need to build your own empire. You'll, you'll never be truly satisfied uh, just helping other people build theirs. That's the sort of long answer to how. So uh, it's not always selling on lemonade stand or lunches in the in kindergarten. <laughs> so all right just so i kind of get a picture or the listeners kind of get a picture you you describe the 80s as being kind of where you're kind of bitten by this kind of business bug kind of structurally economically 
how does the 80s differ in terms of the world of business and finance from let's say the 70s for me that the the era is kind of um um, is differentiated because of Reaganomics and then you have Wall Street and the movie uh, and Gordon Gecko and, and kind of greed is good but let's have a nice and Gerlach um, kind of wider di- you know differentiation of 70s the world of uh, international commerce business etc finance and then the 80s and why was the 80s so different I think the way that I, my perspective, I, I always say I have no right or wrong answers. I only have my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, my perspective of the 80s, and it really was, I'm glad you brought up the movie Wall Street. This Gordon Gecko greed is good. Um, you know, I, uh, the reason why my show is called The Unapologetic Capitalist is because I really do believe in capitalism. Um, and Capitalism became associated with greed, and some of it really from the Gordon Gecko Wall Street days, um, and and sort of how the era brought up this uh, pursuit of money uh, being the same thing as greed. Um, where I look at that as a very short term cash play, I look at the eighties and capitalism in general. The big part of the era to me and my perspective is that it was really changed the way people built their own value. And I'm always careful to talk about building long-term value rather than just talking about dollars. Dollars often means value to people, but not always. Value is something that has a different definition and different perspective. The 70s, I think you could have your job, your profession, and you earned your salary, and some salaries were better than others, but you built your wealth around that. The 80s, and because of Wall Street and the building of the uh, money that went into the stock exchange and the way that finance sort of developed, and I think the media did play a big role in that. You know, the, the big television shows at the time were like Dallas and Dynasty about oil and, you know, big empires and corporations. Um, but the way you built value sort of changed. It, it evolved from, well, you weren't going to get wealthy or build great value just by your salary anymore. There was this notion of investments. There was this notion of uh, creating value and making your money work for you rather than just something you were sort of saving and building as a nest egg. So that's sort of how I, I think I looked at how the 80s sort of shaped my a passion for capitalism, but also really wanted to separate it from not the short-term greed that I think was really presented in the 80s, because it was an era of a lot of opulence, um, and really sort of say the modern good example of capitalism is the person who really values the pursuit of long-term wealth generation, long-term value generation over a short-term cash play and really values the uh, needs of the greater good over just the um, wants of the individual. And greed is all about indulging a want of an individual versus the needs of a venture or the greater good. Okay, so... So greed is not good, as Gordon Gecko once said to us. (laughs) <laughs> or is it just a degree of greed maybe a little bit of selfish 
um, you know, need, needs and wants is is good. But anyway, let let's move. But let on. me actually say Go one on. thing about that. I do think that having a fiduciary interest is good. I do believe because when somebody has a, a financial interest in something, it is so much easier to align everybody's incentive to create a significant value in the long term. So from that aspect, I would say, yes, that you hope that people have some sort of financial incentive if you're going to look at greed in that way. So I, I don't want to derail our conversation here, but then would you take taking that as uh as as a valid point would you then believe that um all boardrooms should have um a workers representative then because then the workers then would completely understand the needs wants and the strategic vision of the company and they have not only a wage owning stake within that company but also a decision making stake I think I would look at it as if you did not have a representative who didn't understand that the needs of every person in the organization um, need to be met in order for the greater good of the entire company to be served, then you don't have a very good board to begin with. But Alison, you know, and I know, that there are many boards of many companies where all those board members have no idea of the needs and wants and the concerns, fears, working practices, etc. of many people that work in those companies. Absolutely. I think that that's a, a real problem. And most a lot of my show focuses on leadership, uh, on uh, just the very things you're talking about because companies are so suboptimal because they lack a basic organizational process understanding. And I talk a lot, I have a lot of different shows that talk about understanding who all the players are, not just within your organization, but all the partners that you have outside of your organization. And if you can't find a way to align all of those incentives, then the greater good of and the value of the entity will never be optimally met. And you know, that's part of why uh, I I have a job that I have is because of, you know, the inefficiencies that exist and the hope to bring those efficiencies to others. How do you graduate top of your class uh, at MIT? I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you were somewhat of a, a, a rather earnest student whilst you were at college. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I um, wasn't nearly as diligent as I became when I went to graduate school. And I think, you know, the the, the needs uh, of education, I've often said, and I actually have an episode uh, that talk, talks very specifically about how to get yourself educated and when you do and don't need more formal education. Business is one of those areas where you don't need to go to school to practice. It's not like being a, a lawyer or a doctor. You, know, you have to go to law school if you want to practice law, and you have to go to medical school if you want to legally practice medicine. Um, but business, anyone can uh, practice business, and you really don't need a degree. And anyone can get lucky and, and do fine, and even do better than fine sometimes if the circumstances all roll their way. Um, I actually had no intention of even going to graduate school uh, once I finished uh, my undergraduate 
uh, studies because I thought, well, I don't need to. I, I should get my education working. Um, and it wasn't until, and I always say to my students, that's why your 20s are lovely, because you know everything. And isn't that a fun time when you really believe that you just know everything? And it's only when you get smart about a few things that you realize how much you have to learn. And it was when I really wanted to learn some very specific things that I uh, decided to go back to graduate school. And MIT specifically, because of their curriculum, they really were interested in creating experts in their field. And specifically, I was looking at the field of new product and venture development. And, um, you know, so when I was there, I I don't think I went there without um, any goals of earning great grades. I really went there because I was very hungry to learn very specific things. And um, MIT was a place where, uh, boy, it was just a smorgasbord of um, really interesting professors, unbelievably interesting classmates from all over the world. And I think the it was so compelling just to indulge yourself in every bit of the knowledge that the, the environment, your classmates, the uh, professors, the people who would come to speak that they had, that I just was so absorbent of all of that, that sort of the good grades on top of the class was uh, a byproduct. You, you, you're selling yourself massively short there, surely. Right. And it's such a prestigious uh, uh, college and it's such a prestigious class. If you came top, um, it's also because of your kind of innate drive as well as all those other ingredients as well. There was sort of an irony, actually, when I was at MIT. Uh, I remember at our orientation, the dean of the school at the time, he said to look around at your class because everyone comes from whatever profession they were in they were almost certainly the top 1% to get into the class at MIT. And he said, but look around, because in this group, statistically, 50% of you will be below average. (laughs) And at that moment, I had never felt so exposed in my life. I thought, oh, my God, I conned my way into the university, and I'm going to be found out at any second. Uh, And I, I actually think some of my drive and extreme diligence I had at MIT. And I will say, I worked so hard, especially my first semester, a group of my friends uh, were about to stage an intervention to get me to sort of chill out a little bit. Um, But I think some of the drive really came from the fear of I wasn't nearly worthy enough to be there, I had to work 10 times as hard. um, Because I thought for sure I'd be found out that I didn't really belong there. Uh, it was it was quite lovely at the end to look back to see what I had accomplished to realize that uh, I did all right. So after you graduated, what came next? Um, I started my own company. I did um, a thesis in school of um, optimizing. I had spent a lot of time studying systems optimization. And I had looked at building a company as a, a very important system. And I looked at how can somebody build a company so that from the start it has its best chance at achieving long-term value. And by that I did mean fiduciary success. And so I had actually worked on a business plan in 
my last uh, semester of graduate school, and uh, I went and built that company uh, out of school, and you know, sort of implemented the um, tenets of of the thesis that I had written, and I uh, ran that company for a little over five years. So you ran it for five years. So what was the reason for um, for exiting after that five years? Um, at the time, actually, five years was quite a long time. Um, I The way I like to look at ventures is I always want to build them. I, I believe it's really important that when you start a venture, you have to have an exit in mind. And that isn't to say that it's a stake in the ground that will never move. Obviously, markets are dynamic. Things change. But if you don't have an optimal exit in mind, how do you possibly know you're going in the right direction? So it's very important. And I've actually since consulted for businesses that were actually financially very successful, but you had founders who were sort of trapped in the business and could never leave. And it's because they never envisioned what success would look like and how you move on. So I've always looked at businesses as what the exit plan would be before I would even start it. So for this business and for most of the businesses that I start, the exit usually is somebody buys it. Um, And whether that's another investor uh, who might buy out uh, an interest, but in general, the most optimal exit is really for some larger strategic company to buy you out. And so I had... I had really aimed to do that. And I think at the time, it was the mid to late 90s. Things were moving very fast then. Uh, That was when the bubble was uh, really starting to inflate like crazy in the dot-com era. I actually, here's here's how fast things were changing, was when I was in business school and um, a professor of mine told me, no matter what, when you show your financial pro formas, don't ever show your company going from zero to 200 million in revenues in three years. No one will believe it. It's just silly. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, you've got to have something that an investor will believe. By the time I graduated, uh, if you didn't show going from zero to 200 million in 18 months, nobody wanted to talk to you. Uh, and I actually did this true story. I had an investor. And at the time, I was valuing my company at about. $30 million, and I was looking for about a $5 million uh, investment. And the guy looked at me, and I was very proud of my economic principles, of the revenue model we were generating. We were uh, very stable, ensured product profitability. And I think he thought that this was all sort of cute because in the late 90s, all people cared about was hyperinflated growth really fast and he looked right at me and he said look I think it's cute what you've done with your company here but I want you to redo your um, your business plan so that I can give you um, 50 million dollars not five I want to be able to give you 50 million dollars I want to march you to an initial public offering an IPO inside of nine months uh, for a billion dollar market cap and I sort of smiled at him and I said well, how about since I valued my company, I said, I just said you could have 100% of my company for $30 million, and you want me to redo my business model so you can take about 30% for $50 million? I said, I'll give it all to you right now for 30 You can do it yourself. <laughs> and he sort of looked at me strangely like, well, that's not really how we're doing things. <laughs> I mean, that's how ridiculous things 
things got in the in the late 90s. It was an interesting time. And I was chastised quite a bit for never having taken venture dollars for that um, that company that I started. But I did exit that company still owning a significant chunk. And we survived the, the dot-com bubble because we had actually built a real business. You know, I find actually quite fascinating. You haven't told me what your company actually did. You had you had a business, you had a company, but I don't know actually what, what you did. And, and this is the reason why you are the successful business person and I'm not. I mean, I've always said, look, my great expertise is in building and growing uh, companies and, and putting them on the most optimal path for significant long-term value. Um, there are certain industries that I have an expertise in. I have many years experience in consumer products, uh, for instance. But when I do talk about the companies I've built, uh, when I teach them as case studies, um, it's interesting that you recognize I actually never really talk about the industries they're in because it's the business principles that I think are the takeaways, that I think are the frameworks. And mm. sometimes when you talk about industries, all of a sudden somebody in a different industry says, well, that doesn't relate to mine, when it actually might. So it's interesting you picked up on that, that I, I'm actually really careful to sort of really talk about the the things that any business could relate to. It doesn't have to be a certain size. It doesn't have to be a certain industry um, because really every business has special nuances um, to them that are going to be specific. And that's what the founders should know really well. But there are business principles that certainly can be incorporated. But that's why I also say, I don't ever want anyone to cut and paste their business ideas into, you know, my story or what worked for me or what worked for another company, because those things only worked for those businesses at those specific times of the market. Um, you know, it's really important that when you are thinking about building value, that all you're doing is taking in frameworks that you can apply yourself so that you can be a thinker for your own business. And that's really important to me. I, I don't I don't want anyone to think like me. I already think like me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's enough. Um, so, so that's why I sort of don't really talk too much about an industry because at some level, I want people to take the pieces um, that can contribute to their own thinking in their own specific circumstances. How, apart from kind of hyperinflated uh, rates of growth, um, wanting to rush to IPO, etc., how has the the online world, the the new kind of digital, it's not so new now, but let's say how how has the last let's say twenty years, um, how has that impacted on on the perception of how you run a business? How has the, the you know the the likes of the growth of Apple and all these online brands? How has that impacted on the world of commerce and business? Would you say? That's an excellent question. Um, I my one of the greatest impacts. There's sort of a couple. On the one hand, um, the companies that have been truly innovative, like Google, Apple. I could certainly name many. Um, what they have given is this notion of 
there really is a significant potential to create something extraordinary and something of really substantial value. And you don't need to have the com- company for 100 years to do that. Um, and you can do it in a lifetime. Um, I think there's some really great things about that. I think the flip side of that is you don't have to be a Google or an Apple to be very successful, that there are many different paths to achieve great success. And the other sort of challenge of how the whole digital dot com high tech era of of startup and business growth has changed is there's a, a tremendous amount of impatience uh, the venture investors are impatient. They want to, like I, the story I shared, they want to see their returns in a, a couple of years, not in the traditional five, seven, ten years of what it used to be before the, the big tech boom. And the entrepreneurial community has also changed quite a bit as well. There's, I've often said that entrepreneurs, um, in there's this sort of society of startups and people who founded companies and you would think that we would all be so supportive of one another because it's a very difficult path uh it's it's stressful it's a lot of blood sweat and tears it's sometimes only getting paid in equity and not even be able to pay your bills you you stay up at nights wondering how am i going to make payroll how am i going to make rent on this office space i just got Um, I always say starting a company is great. You get to do this one fabulous ego indulging move, which is you give yourself a title. You get to call yourself the CEO and that feels so grand. That's something that you go back to the 80s. You got that title after 20, 30 years of very hard work. Now you could get it right out of grad school. So you give yourself this title, but then the second you have employees – You look around and realize, oh, my gosh, these are people whose livelihoods now depend on me. And there's this need to not to grow very big, very quickly. Uh, And I think that's a little detrimental because um, it's a fearful way to build a business, because if you're not go big or go home, I've heard that so often. Um, And I find that to be a terrible business strategy. Um, you know, you don't have to go big and you don't have to go uh, home. <laughs> There's many shades in between that can lead towards something quite successful. If there's one business titan who um, you would say, right, here is somebody who did kind of great things, who was, let's say, kind of had his heyday before the 1980s so it could be anybody from i don't know from the 1850s to let's say to, to 1980 who would that be and why wow i have to think about that one um you know i think there's companies i, I love the story of m&m mars mm-hmm. you know the candy company uh it's a nice it's a family business that um you know, saw opportunity and built on it in a way that was um, sort of uh, examples of good capitalism along the way. And they've maintained a very excellent growth industry and, and been able to transform themselves throughout the years. Um, I actually like 
uh, to look at um, musicians who've managed to reinvent themselves. Um, so bands like U2 that have been relevant for so long and evolved through, you know, didn't they found success early, but then leveraged that success and grew upon it. And I think those types of stories are the ones I find to be really compelling um, because... And, and you're saying that you're equating you two to being um, a business. So we're not talking about... Uh, you two have just been musicians and artists, but it's you two as maintaining, selling, uh, maintaining a brand, selling units consistently throughout decades, updating their image. Is that how you're making the analogy? Um, yes, but it could be seen as their artistry too. Um, you know, they, like I said, that you you can point to a few. There's really a handful of. Uh, musicians and artists that are considered legends rather than just, hey, they were successful in their time. And it's because they really did evolve their art or their product as, you know, and if it was just a widget, let's say in the business, Mm -hmm. you know, to not rest their laurels on that one widget and say, well, I've made enough money, so I'm done. And I've seen that happen through the years in businesses where somebody has had great success, but then they said, well, I've made enough money. Um, but they didn't realize that they'd also created a business that other people depended on and they didn't realize that they were letting a whole bunch of fruit sort of die on the vine just because, well, they made enough money. But the really, I find the really excellent, you know, good shows of capitalism and entrepreneurship are the ones who say, wow, we saw an opportunity, we created a product, it it was compelling to um, a core consumer and we are going to continue to leverage that and service that. And why they're successful is because they were really responsive to the core consumer. So that would be the same as an artist responding to their listeners by creating and evolving their, uh, their art to speak to new audiences and to grow their audiences. The same as somebody creating a widget who found that there was a group that it served and realized, wow, I can actually leverage this, grow this and create new, larger and, and greater uh, consumer bases. I think that's a very interesting analogy to specifically use musicians because if a musician only ever just listens to their audience, They'll never be innovative and actually, creatively, they'll die. Um, What you need to be is just that slightly that one step ahead as well to be able to push musically, creatively um, in in new directions. Uh, Because actually then what you do is you create kind of new markets, you get new listenerships as well and also you're seen as being massively kind of innovative and I suppose the analogy um, in the world of business uh, then is absolutely then well made that all companies um, of any size of any repute have research and development departments you need Mm -hmm. to be always looking at where the market might go guessing where it might go and that is the kind of the very much the human element of um, 
you know, uh, large uh, multinational kind of companies, isn't it? You can't just forever Absolutely. rest on your laurels and just keep producing the same old stuff. And, and it's kind of interesting. You go to somewhere like Venice and you can go to the island of Murano where they make all these wonderful kind of glass blown uh, chandeliers and whatever. And they've been doing the same thing in effect for three, four hundred years. And they're seen as being the the epitome of kind of, of of that type of um, intersection of art and and commerce and industry, but um, those businesses are all actually very small, though they're seen as actually being the top in terms of the finesse. But they're actually all incredibly small because what those businesses don't do is actually look at research and development and actually test new materials because they have this standard way of actually making the product. But anyway, Alison, you didn't listen to my question. Because <laughs> I said uh, pre-1980, and I think you two... Ah, uh, you two goes back to the 70s. But they didn't, but they really hit their stride in the... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Early 80s, early 80s. But I did, give you, I did give you Eminem Mars. You did, you did, I did. Now, the second part of the question is going to be pre post-1995. And you can't use Steve Jobs. For who I find to be a compelling entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. No Steve um, Jobs, no Zuckerberg, no, you know, no I, Google people. But I actually, you know, even if you had let me have those, I, I wouldn't have chosen them. Good. Um, you know, Why Steve not? Jobs. Steve Jobs, I think, has an interesting story. Um, but I also wonder how much more he might have done were he not to, uh, you know, from a leadership standpoint, he... He was a great innovator, no question. Um, he was not a great leader, nor was he even a good manager. And I wonder how much more he might have created or without the bumps 
he hit in the road because of that. And Zuckerberg, uh, again, I think he... Let's just stop in Steve Jobs. Why wasn't he a good business leader? Um, Because he's massively lionized. And I I think you're right. But he's massively lionized by people who look at Apple as being, um, in a way, one of the quintessential now American companies of the last 20 years. He has a career arc which is almost biblical you know he had his early success but he had to fight for it then he had his crash and he was wandering in the desert and then uh you know he kind of came back took over his company it's an absolutely compelling story um but why when you look at, at the details at the weeds why wasn't he uh, a very good business leader um i think all the things that made him such an unbelievably successful innovator uh, were, I think, at odds with some of the things he needed to do to genuinely lead, um, to have a supportive cast around him so that he didn't have those those times in the desert. I mean, his own company ended up kicking him out. Um, you know, he wanted to pursue certain things that, um, you know, I, I think he lost track of the greater good over the product sometimes that he was trying to create. The toughest part of leadership is understanding the long-term needs of the venture over your own individual wants. And sometimes it's very hard to discern needs from your wants because sometimes you want something so badly it feels like you need it. Um, but you really need to check your ego at the door and you need to be able to separate your own personal passions from the being able to make optimal, rational business decisions. And I think his passions were so driving, uh, and that's what cre- gave him such creative success on the product development side. But I also think it was his greatest impediment in terms of being a leader, because passion should be the thing that keeps you going in the times that uh, feel very long and arduous. Passion should be nowhere near decision-making. Decision-making needs to be divorced of that passion so that you can objectively look at what's in the best interest of the long-term value of the venture, not just this one need. So I'm, I'm not sure how clear that is, but like the very things that made him so unbelievably successful in product development, I think hindered him from being able to genuinely lead a company at certain times to to be able to seek the greater good. Okay. So who's going to be our business person from 1995 in the last 20, 21 years? Who, who's, the, who's the person who um, I should run off and, and go and study their business practices? I'm not sure I have a name, honestly. Um, I, I like bits and pieces of lots of different stories. and Tell me I two think bits and pieces, Alison. Bits and pieces, gosh. I, I, honestly, no name is coming to mind. I, um, I, I, I have to be thoughtful about that. I, let, I, let, let's come back to that. Let's come, let's back, come to that. back to that. I... I've kind of hinted at this before, and and you've kind of disabused me of um, if that's even the a word or even the right word. But I always thought when I started my business, um, 
initially at the start I thought I was a business person then I realized very quickly I was an entrepreneur not a business person and then I've kind of realized that I was neither what I was was somebody who was incredibly passionate specifically about what I was doing and I it just so happened that I was in a field where commerce finance uh product development, the internet kind of all intersected. If I was going to start a business today, what are the key ingredients that I need? And and give me two bits of advice. What are the key ingredients I need to have um, as character traits, character, character traits to put my teeth in? And give me two bits of advice. You know, me being the everyman me, I don't mean specifically me. Sure. The best advice I could give is to do exactly what I said, which is sit down and say, find, what do I want to get out of this? Find, say, here's my optimal exit strategy. If I could wave a magic wand, here's what this looks like okay, at the end say of the if day. if I say I want to have a um, big, nice red Ferrari, I want to be driving up and down the the uh, Ipanema Beach, I want lots of hot babes. That's my exit strategy. Is that going to make me a good businessman? Well, that's not really an exit strategy. That's what you want for yourself that you hope to afford from the exit strategy. Uh Aha. So I would look at that and say, all right, if you want your Ferrari and you want to have excessive cash for leisure and, um, you know, the hot babes and all that, Um, look at that as a number and say, can I get that with 10 million? Can I get that with 50 million? What do, what do I need to exit with to make that happen? And the reason why it's so important to, uh, to answer that question, like I said, one, if you don't know you're going where you're going, how do you possibly know you're going in the right direction? You might be spinning off into uh, an abysmal failure without even recognizing it. So, and the second piece of advice after you sort of figure out, okay, if that's what I want, what does the business need to achieve for me to get that? You have to ask questions in the right order. And the first question you have to ask yourself is why? Why am I starting this business? And that should be so I can make $10 million, so I can make $50 million if that's what's going to meet your goal. And then once you've answered that, that's sort of the anchor that centers to the next question, which is, all right, after I ask the question, why? The next question is, who? And the who is your the team you need around you to help support you, your employees, your managers, everybody within the company that you're going to need to help you get towards uh, meeting that goal. Your who is also, who are my customers who are my consumers and a lot of times those are two different things i usually say a consumer is someone that actually uses your product a customer is anyone who might pay for that product so for instance if you're selling cookies you might sell them to a distributor but they're not the ones eating the cookies they're the ones giving the cookies to a retail store the retail store then pays the distributor and the retail store is not eating the cookies either the retail store might send them to then you know, some uh, family who goes into a shop and buys a bag of cookies, then they eat the cookies. 
So I've already talked about several different who's that you need to understand how they behave, what their incentives are, what they care about, what their priorities are. There's also they're going to be regulatory environments. There's this whole external amount of who's. So I would say if you can answer very well why and then who, then figuring out the what, where, when, and all those tactical questions, those questions should answer themselves because you did your homework really well. Alison, guess what? I've got a great idea for a business. Network of podcasts. What do you reckon? Can it fly? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> One of the things which I found uh, really compelling about the times when we've spoken before is the fact that um, you don't, um, I can't easily label you. Now, to my kind of British sensibilities, you're an American woman, a West Coaster, so, and uh, you're, you're into business and you have a title of your podcast, which we'll come on to in, in a little while, uh, which is the Unapologetic Capitalist. So by definition, me being an old European dyed in the wool lefty, I'm supposed to go, Rrr. but you're into football. And I mean football in in the sense that, you know, the 95% of the globe calls it football. Um, where did that passion come from? Boy, I've been into sport uh, since uh, before I think I was into entrepreneurship. That's where I did grow up uh, playing ball. Um, I played uh, in America, we sadly call soccer, um, since I was a little kid. But I played all different types of sport. And uh, and I enjoyed watching all different kinds of sport. And um, so I've had a passion for sports since uh, I can remember. Uh, and I just, I love the uh, business of sports. I love the romance of sports. I, I love that sport is, uh, can defy all statistical probability sometimes. And I find that so compelling and interesting. Um, how can you not love it? Absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, we need to actually specifically talk about your podcast. Um, did you set the podcast up to help sell your brand as a consultant uh, or did you have some other reason for uh, putting together this rather quality product? I consider myself actually an accidental podcaster, which is unusual considering the great uh, diligence and intention I've gone into every other business venture in my life. Um, I had been lecturing, uh, doing academic lectures and some corporate lectures on uh, optimal business building, optimal business startup for quite some time. And on an airplane ride from uh, New York uh, back to San Diego one time, I sat next to someone who uh, we struck up a conversation right when we sat down getting on the plane. And uh, he was very compelled by our discussion. He was a media guy. He said he doesn't understand any business stuff. And I said, would you like to? And he said, sure, but there's no way I'll understand it. And I said, I bet I could explain it in a way that felt accessible. And by the time we landed, he said, you know, I'm about to have a meeting um, where uh, I'm talking about to a network about some talk radio shows. Can you put together a little summary? I'd love for you to have a show where you could make um, business accessible to uh, you know, a whole range of folks who find entrepreneurship and venture and business compelling. 
And really, that's how it started. What was the biggest hurdle that you had to overcome setting up your podcast and actually doing those first episodes? Um, I was pretty fortunate because um, I, when I started, I was set up with production. I um, used to record, before I went and recorded on my own, I used to record uh, at a professional studio. I had engineers. I had my, a producer that was provided for me by the network. So I think I lucked into quite a bit. Once I started um, doing it on my own, I would say the biggest hurdle I've had is um, is myself. Uh, I happen to ironically be an incredible social media phobe, and I am spectacularly terrible at self promotion. Um, so uh, those two things you are not great. You haven't done too great. bad a job on this interview <laughs> today. Stop it. Um, no, the interviews I'm comfortable with. I, I enjoy them so much. I'm sure you can tell. Uh, it's really the getting out there on the social media, uh, getting out there and uh, self-promoting, um, you know, and, and doing the sort of sales bit of it that I'm I'm so uncomfortable with. Uh, I'm happy to lecture. I'm happy to be interviewed. All that stuff is lovely and wonderful. Uh, it's the stuff you need to really do yourself to really build and expand your audience that I think has been my my greatest challenge, uh, without a doubt. One of the things which I've always kind of really marked about kind of podcasts is that kind of business, self-improvement, etc. There's a real kind of intersection of, of those two kind of uh, genres of podcasts. And in terms of entrepreneurship, there's a lot of podcasts out there that kind of deal with that topic. How is your podcast different? Um, the... Main thing about my podcast, and I agree, there's many out there, and I think there's some really excellent ones. Um, what's important uh, to my podcast and what I hope to give is that I would really like to make people better thinkers for themselves. I, I don't want to give any uh, little how-tos here and there, but rather to give frameworks for people, um, and also to make it very relatable um, and accessible, that there's nothing so complex that can't be described in simple terms. But simple doesn't mean small or um, condescending. Um, it means smart. And so I'm hoping that the discussion and the interactivity of the unapologetic capitalist is all about creating long-term value for your venture, whatever that venture might be. What's the best interview uh, you've conducted in the last month? I have an interview that is going to be coming up this fall. Um, so I haven't done the interview yet. I've done a pre-interview. Alison, you're supposed to say this I, one. I I know, but it's the only one within the last month I can really speak to. I Actually, actually that's not true. I have two. Uh, one is my favorite interviews in general are with entrepreneurs. Um, I occasionally will profile a venture and we will have a show discussing an issue that keeps them up at night. And um, there's one entrepreneur I've actually not just interviewed once, but I followed up several months later to see how he was doing. Um, and I enjoy those so much because they're very earnest. 
um, they're they're genuinely discussing an issue, and it's very uh, relatable to so many of the listeners. Rather than when I do have an interviewer on, where they're trying to sell a book or something of the like. Um, the other type of interview where I am interviewing someone who has a book. Um, I have one interview that I've completed and there's a show that is up and you can listen to. And that uh, is with Bill Allett, who's the executive director of the entrepreneurship uh, program at uh, the Sloan School at MIT. Um, he has a very interesting take on entrepreneurship and I enjoyed our discussion very much. And then one that's coming up of someone who has um, – I actually might even answer another question of yours, which is who would I point to as someone that I think is a very uh, compelling business person and leader, and that's Ken Blanchard. Um, I think people might know him from the 15-minute uh, manager uh, of fame. He's coming out with a new book in the fall that circles around mentorship, and he's he's really a thoughtful, smart um, a person who uh, – is continually innovating uh, and being thoughtful uh, and and learning more about uh, how to build better businesses, how to lead better, how to manage better. And I, I find that to be quite compelling. I'm such a terrible interviewer that I so mangled my question that the only answer I was uh, waiting on and wanted was you, of course, Roy Field. Uh, you've really dragged me over the coals. This has been the most amazing experience. <laughs> well, now you have, see, then you have to flip the question the other way, saying who's interviewed me in the exactly. most I, I mangled it. I mangled it. I, I dropped the ball. Alison Gerlach, this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you for agreeing to be on the exchange and to be our podcaster of the month and thank you Roy Field for giving me questions that I couldn't necessarily answer that is my want that is my want Alison if anybody wants to catch up with you on social media where and how can they do that Uh, they can do an old fashioned email uh, which is the UC T-H-E-U-C at unapologeticcapitalist.com or they can reach out to me on Twitter which is at A-B Gerlach A-B-G-E-R-L-A-C-H or you could visit my website which is unapologeticcapitalist.com there's contact info there don't forget each month on the Agora Podcast Network uh, we do this the exchange and we promote uh, one of our own uh, so look out for us next month I don't know who that will be but it will be Thomas Daly in the hot seat who will be interviewing somebody else so you can go to agorapodcastnetwork.com to find out all the shows that we do I've been Royfield Brown it's been great speaking to you bye bye The Agora Podcast Network Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners Our network of shows includes American Biography, The Bohemian Podcast, How Jamaica Conquered the World, The History of the Papacy, The History of England, The History of Alchemy Podcast, Mid-Atlantic, When Diplomacy Fails, 1001 Conversations, History of Anglo-Saxon England, The Secret Cabinet from German, 10 American Hold up! 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today.